0: The Buddha said that the Dhamma will protect and look after one who practises the Dhamma. And as monks we live very simple lives in the sense we have very few possessions, no money. But we do have the Dhamma the Dhamma and the Vinaya. That's the basis for our life. The Vinaya links us together. Practicing, we've come together from different backgrounds, countries, different personalities. But we all agree to follow the Vinaya and Uphold the principles, the values of the Vinaya. It threads us together. And then we all aspire to practice the Dhamma and come to understand the Dhamma, the truth that liberates us from suffering. when we do have suffering of different kinds, mental suffering, physical suffering, it's a challenge, it's an experience that requires the Dhamma and Vinaya to respond appropriately When we lose our mindfulness and our understanding of Dhamma or lose our Vinaya, then the experience of suffering becomes overwhelming. We've all known that. We've had suffering and the mind loses all its mindfulness, unable to reflect at that time, at that moment, But as we come to practice together, we're learning how to deal with suffering and its causes, going right to the very causes in our own hearts and minds and using the Dhamma and the Vinaya (coughs) to develop the qualities, the discipline, the mental strengths and qualities to deal with suffering So it isn't something that overwhelms us anymore, but it's something that becomes a noble truth. We understand suffering as suffering, as dukkha, something to be known, comprehended. In the beginning, we rely on the Vinaya training. We learn the rules, remember them, the monastic training, the routines, the ways of practice. You'll notice there's no rule for, or well, there's no rule that we break when we have a thought of anger or greed or lust. Vinaya is the training of our external behavior, our speech, our actions. Helps us to bring up sense of composure, restraint, mindfulness of what we're saying and doing, make our behavior appropriate and harmless to ourselves, to others. But still we have mental defilements arising. But the Buddha in his wisdom understood what we have to practice with our mind and the different states of mind generated through our karma. So he didn't make it an offence to have an angry thought arise or a thought of lust arise. But it's what we do with it. What we do next is where the important place of practice is. We use the Vinaya to provide a boundary on our behavior. And that provides us with the limit and the space that we can then reflect back on our state of mind. Start to contemplate it, bring out mindfulness, contemplate whatever the kilesa or negative mental state is that has arisen. Start to see the harm of it and respond to it with mindfulness and wisdom. this is much of our daily training. All of us have different mental defilements arising from different situations. A lot of it is because the Vinaya requires us to do things. We're required to perform duties. We have responsibilities and duties which we have to do. We have to follow a routine. We have to act in certain ways because of the Vinaya. And there's also things that we would like to do but we can't do because of the Vinaya. So that's constantly setting up some stress in the mind. Things we want to do and say that we can't. Things that we have to do that maybe we don't want to do but we have to do. But this is where we start to see our attachments, craving and attachment which is the cause of suffering. So the Vinaya leads us back to look at the root cause of our suffering, the greed, the anger, the delusion in our minds. It exposes these mental states for us if we're practicing sincerely and using the Vinaya as, as a tool for training, not only training body and speech, but training mind. So what we gain from practicing the Vinaya is improved mental discipline, improved mindfulness, improved right effort and improved wisdom, understanding. We start to become clearer, what is a negative unwholesome mental state what is a skillful, wholesome mental state? As that wisdom deepens through the experience of the practice, we become sharper, cleverer, and quicker at recognizing defilements and letting them go, Reckoning, recognizing them as the cause of suffering, samudaya, that which should be abandoned given up. That skill, you know, that's the skill of a monk, becoming familiar with defilement, familiar with abandoning defilement. And we have all the sensitivity, the wisdom, the mindfulness to do that properly and well. That's what we're aiming for in our practice, through, through the practice. So as we practice sincerely, whatever's coming up, however much old karma we have, we're learning to deal with it skillfully. So the practice of Dhamma protects us, stops us from falling into more suffering and creating the causes for more suffering. Gives us the skills to look after our own heart and mind because that's where Suffering arises, that's where its causes are. Every time we give in to a mental defilement, plants another seed, leaves another impression on our own jitter, our heart, which will ripen when the conditions are there, it will ripen. Whether we like it or not, want it or not, it will ripen. It's just cause and effect. If we start to remedy that by abandoning mental defilements, not giving in to them, not following them, recognizing them, letting them go, then those seeds are not getting planted in the jitta. And the opposite is happening. You know, skillful mental states and qualities are arising, which also to seeds, but the better seeds, the seeds that result in Peace, happiness, wisdom, understanding. Well, the mental defilements are always lurking around, ready, ready to come up. even in, as we practice the vinaya, we can become opinionated or caught into different views about what is right or wrong, deny about the rules, ways of practice. We can become caught into views, opinions about meditation. Most of us in the West, we come to Buddhism because we become interested in meditation. And we start reading, meditating and reading. And from my experience, most people are very sincere in their interest to pursue the study and practice of Buddhism, especially if you get to the point where you ordain, you have a lot of sincere interest. But we also bring along with us more subtle defilements, the the mental defilements, which often form around craving for results, craving for knowledge, craving for special experiences in the practice. But because there's craving leading on to attachment, and we're actually often practicing with an attitude that is going to lead us to more suffering, even though on the outside it appears we're doing our practice, keeping the rules, learning the meditation techniques, bringing them into practice, sometimes we're actually creating the causes for disappointment, frustration, because of our sincerity and commitment. We're so committed, we want results, we want to get somewhere with the practice. Often we're impatient, often we're quite judgmental on ourselves or others around. And when we don't get the results, often we turn to aversion, irritation. In our old habit of looking for something or someone to blame comes up. A very common experience for the meditator to put forth effort, sincere effort but because it's mixed up with a sense of self and a wish for results then if the results don't come in good time or they come but then they disappear again And then we easily go to disappointment, frustration, sometimes even give up the practice. So we have to really learn how to nourish the practice, develop skillful attitude and skillful qualities to help counteract that habit, the habit of always seeking results, focusing on results, reading, and thinking all about the results that will come from the practice levels of samadhi, levels of insight, attainments, and nibbana we have to be careful not to let that become a cause for frustration when the reality of our practice emerges that maybe it will take some time to develop the qualities that are needed to develop samadhi, insight liberation from the defilements. We might have to be more humble and accept the small successes that we have on a daily basis, learning to follow the Vinaya, bringing out mindfulness, letting go of defilements here and there as they come up, even though overall there may still be many Defilements and suffering arising in the mind. We can still appreciate the small successes we have along the way in our practice. And Ajahn Chah said, "Any time you're bringing up mindfulness, then you're practicing, you're meditating. So we never have to feel lost or feel, or let our frustration overcome us." We just go back to the basic, bring up mindfulness, and then we're practicing, we're on the right path. When dukkha takes over the mind, and of course we lose mindfulness, the sense of self becomes strong, and the dis- disappointment, despair, depression that comes with it. But as soon as you bring up mindfulness, you're cutting through that there's a chance to gain detachment and see dukkha as dukkha rather than my dukkha. And rather than getting caught up in it, we can start to step back from it. So we have to develop these nourishing qualities, the patience, the humility, the hiriotapa that helps us to steer away from defilement. We also have to use wisdom. We have all studied a lot. We've read a lot, studied a lot. We've got a lot of information in our minds about the Dhamma, the Vinaya, the Buddhist teachings. We can use this for our own advantage in the practice. As we know, as we practice meditation, this samatha, this vipassana, (coughs) these two strands of meditation, or two parts of the meditation, working to support the whole, which is the training of this mind in the Dhamma, to see the Dhamma. Samatha is the basic practice of mindfulness on an object, learning to calm the mind bring it to a sense of tranquility, serenity, bringing up the wholesome qualities, piti and sukha, one-pointedness. Vipassana is the development of insight, turning mindfulness to contemplate and reflect, to see the three characteristics in phenomena. But sometimes we can use the technique of vipassana and just learn to use the information that we've already accumulated to help with our meditation. Samatha is often a very frustrating practice. Sometimes we seem successful with it, sometimes not. Sometimes the mind settles down, sometimes it doesn't. So we can also contemplate, bring up wisdom, insight, and use reflections and themes of Dhamma Mm. and learn to apply the mind to them, bring up some of the information we've accumulated and just contemplate it as we meditate, as we're sitting, as we're walking, as a way to focus the mind in the present moment, bring up mindfulness and start to overcome the hindrances. So as the mind settles, contemplating a theme, Pity and sukha can still arise and the mind can gradually become calm enough to be in a state of samadhi. This is what we call wisdom developing samadhi. Often a very valuable technique if we're experiencing a lot of dukkha and we just can't seem to be able to put mindfulness on our normal, objects such as the breath or the body we might contemplate first that might involve just discursive thinking thinking about a subject recollecting information because all of this can become an object for mindfulness any mindfulness object any meditation object is a, a phenomena this is what we call sabhava dhamma, it's a phenomena that exists in nature. It's got to be one of the, something that's obtained through one of the six sense doors. So sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, or a mental idea, concept. It's got to be something, it's a phenomena that we, we can experience through our six sense doors that could be memories of information, it could be Dhamma teachings we've heard, chants, suttas, just as much as it could be the sensation of the in and out breath, just as much as it could be the practice of metta or karuna, or any of the brahma-viharas. These are all examples, but they're all phenomena, they're the mental phenomena, or Sight, sound, taste, touch, smell. Something that the mind can pick up as an object, bring attention to it. So in the case of contemplation and developing wisdom to, develop, to attain samadhi, you know, we might contemplate an aspect of these five candas, you know, the changing nature of thought. We think it through and watch how, and learn how our own thoughts are changing, observe the rising and passing away of thoughts, or memories, or feelings. We can contemplate the body, contemplate the visual images of the body, the 32 parts, the four elements, using information that we've absorbed previously, so using memory, and using our intelligence to link concepts together, but treating them all as... Sapavadhamma, phenomena, mental objects or physical objects even, in the case of sensations in the body, we can use them as an object for mindfulness, contemplate their impermanence, the stressful nature of these objects, the lack of self in an object, even the information that we contemplate Contemplating the theme of impermanence applied to something or other. That you know, information is thought, it's concepts, ideas, and there's no self in those. There's no personal being in that, it's, it's just information. But the information will have some meaning to us <clears throat> if it's something linked to the Dhamma and <clears throat> we're treating it as Dhamma. Then it will have some meaning, some value to the mind, so it can generate a sense of calm, pointing to the Dhamma, helping us to let go of the hindrances, and the mind can settle down. If you read the suttas or the commentaries, the lives of the Arahants, and even laymen, laywomen practicing in the time of the Buddha, there are so many instances of different reflections that. People used which weren't necessarily formal meditation objects or Pali recitation or whatever, they may be simple activities, became the basis for their contemplation or their enlightenment experience. It could be chopping wood, chopping wood of a repetitive action, just contemplating impermanence, the impermanence of a log of wood as it gets chopped up the movement of the body the movement of the arm chopping the changing nature of that log of wood as it's chopped away and disappears into small chips someone can become enlightened doing that or seeing a mirage on a hot day seeing the changing nature of a mirage ahead because of the heat on the ground shimmering and observing a mirage disappear as you walk towards it. Insights can arise, the mind can go into samadhi and have a liberating experience. Or contemplating death, a very, or very commonly, commonly used theme. With bhikkhus, bhikkhunis or lay people contemplating the impermanence of life and had a moment of insight arise, the mind, meaning the mind went into samadhi and also contemplated the three characteristics. There's so many examples you can think of. The one that comes to mind is Kisa gotami The young mother with the dead baby, the dead baby is about seven months old, gone into a fit of despair, because her baby had died from a high fever. Probably not much medicine available in those days. Maybe she was very poor. The baby died but she is still clinging to it, it was still hot because of the fever and soft, even though it was now dead. So she couldn't accept it and died. She'd never contemplated death before, couldn't accept the death of her own baby. So she was almost crazy with despair. Wandering around crying, trying to find some kind of a doctor or herbal doctor to find some remedy to bring her baby back. She thought it maybe just passed out. Couldn't bring herself to accept the finality of death. Just going from person to person can you help me? Have you got any medicine? until someone suggested that the Buddha would be able to help her for sure. So she went with the hope that the Buddha would help. Goes to the Buddha, and the Buddha understood the situation and saw the potential for insight to arise in this person, so said, yes, I can help you. She already gave her a sense of being at ease, happy. said, I can give you something that will Cure your baby, so of course she was in rapture and keen to follow the Buddha's instructions. He said all you need is some mustard seed and she thought that will be very easy to find but it must be mustard seed from a household where nobody has died. Because she's someone who's never contemplated death very much, didn't realise what a challenge that would be. So she rushed off thinking this would be it, I'll be able to save my baby. Starts going from house to house asking for mustard seed and all houses have them, because they all use them in the cooking. And they're all grateful to give just a few mustard seeds, hardly worth anything. Then the question, oh, by the way, has anyone ever died here? And always the same answer, yes, of course uncle, auntie, granddad, grandma. But as she went from house to house, not only older people had died, she found households where children had died, young people had died, even babies had died, mothers had died, mothers had died died giving birth, miscarriages, babies died in the womb of the mother. Every form of death she encountered. It's like a modern a research student going around asking about the different kinds of deaths until she started to realise the nature of our society is and the nature of karma of human beings is that you can die at any time even in your mother's womb one day old, seven days old seven months old seven years old, seventy years old and death doesn't choose, it's based on karma As she's walking from place to place, you can imagine she's contemplating what you might call wisdom-developing samadhi, cutting through some of that suffering based on blind attachment, not seeing the truth, mindfulness is starting to arise. She starts to see, or even her own baby, seven months old, is already older than some of the other babies that have died, One uh, one day old baby or a baby in the womb of a mother. <clears throat> so the mind starts to accept, oh, even my own baby can die. And as she walked through the day, the baby probably got cooler and stiffer. She gradually comes to the conclusion that my baby is dead and I'm not going to be able to bring it back. And she realizes it's just normal, death is normal. and This is a process of wisdom arising, mindfulness arising. And we hear it in a story, but it could be anyone's mind who's just contemplating with mindfulness, reflecting on the impermanence of the body, the impermanence of life. It's just one of many examples we have. Finally, she comes back to the Buddha and she can accept her her baby's dead, won't be able to return, but this is just normal. So then she's more at ease, her mind returns to this state of normality and acceptance. It's still sad, but she can accept the truth, but the Buddha doesn't stop there. He says, and what about you? Aren't you going to die? So it's like the final insight is stimulated by the Buddha himself. Wisdom developing samadhi, till she has a breakthrough moment. Even she will die, and not only her baby, she must die. and that's insight arising isn't it, it could be wisdom developing samadhi or maybe one develops samadhi first and calms the mind and then contemplates but in the end these two qualities work together the calm, serenity and then the contemplation seeing these are our own five kandhas are of their nature impermanent, stressful, not self, they're not a person, a being they won't last, they change yeah, accepting that. If you have a teacher, sometimes the teacher stimulates this kind of reflection, but ultimately we have to do it ourselves. We take the words of the teacher and we reflect on them. And that in itself is a practice, in not only reading and listening to Dhamma, but when you go away on your own sitting, walking, bring up the Dhamma that you've read or heard. Again, a second time. Remember it, have you remembered it correctly? Can you remember it or do you just read as a a distraction just to pass the time and then forget all about what you've read or heard? And what what you've absorbed externally, you take it away and then bring it up as you walk meditation and sit meditation and you'll find, you get the value of it again and maybe even deeper because now you're doing formal meditation and the mind has some mindfulness, has some serenity so those insights might come up and go in much deeper. This is how we have to practice. Bringing the Dhamma, using the Vinaya as a kind of foundation, personal discipline, and then bringing the Dhamma into our hearts, listening to it, learning it, contemplating it, calming the mind, reflecting again until the mind actually lets go of some of its upadhanas, its delusions and attachments. This is how we practice. We keep bringing the mind back to the present moment, establishing mindfulness. You can't get enlightened in the future so all the proliferation about what you're going to do next, where you're going to be in the future, where, what you would like to do, get, have, that won't bring you any kind of insight. It just brings you more mental proliferation. You can't get enlightened in the past. Something to be learnt from and dropped, let go of. Insight will arise in the present moment with bringing up mindfulness and seeing the transient nature of your own body and mind. To do that, we have to establish mindfulness, contemplate. As we do this, then we understand the way karma works as well, how we are responsible for all our karma through body, speech and mind everything comes back to the heart. Everything is conditioning the heart. We can't avoid it or escape it. We have to be responsible. So every mental state, even though negative mental states are not breaking the Vinaya, they are leaving their karmic trace. So we still have to be committed to letting go of mental defilements. We can't be complacent, careless, because they'll carry on causing us suffering and certainly us with our speech our actions we have to learn to let go of the unwholesome behavior we might have picked up in the past all the time we're making karma so we put effort into abandoning the unwholesome karma cultivating the wholesome karma If we give up on that process, then it goes back to more just habitual karma. So if previously to encountering the Dhamma, we didn't practice mindfulness, we weren't very clear on our conduct, whether it was ethical or moral or not, then we will go back to those kind of habits if we don't practice following in greed, anger and delusion and having to suffer because of it. So we have a night of practice tonight. Even though it's cold, we can practice sitting, walking, putting effort into your practice. Maybe you can get beyond the feelings of cold or tiredness, or just see them as feelings. It's just one form of experience, cold air on your skin, tiredness in the body fuzzy mental states and just keep bringing out mindfulness and observing them for what they are but not attaching, not clinging to them, not letting them be a cause for suffering but just to see them as phenomena arising ceasing. Anyway we can uh, do some chanting now and uh, I'll leave you with these thoughts for your reflection.